Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 14. Uh, as we've seen, we cannot read every word in the book of Romans and can't even touch on every paragraph, but from your comments and trusting the Lord's kindness, uh, I believe that this kind of look at the forest has also complimented maybe some of you as you've looked at the trees. I hear there's Bible studies in the book of Romans going on, and so praise the Lord for just his complimentary work in ministry to arrange this. And so uh, Romans chapters 12 through 16 is our topic tonight, but I'm going to camp out largely on Romans 14 because Paul camps out in Romans 14 and really spends the bulk of his time closing his letter, as he often does, talking about some practical topic. At every some point in Paul's letters, he typically hinges and says something to the effect, therefore, I urge you, brothers. And so in Ephesians, it's really clearly in chapter 4. Some of the other books are a little more unclear. Galatians looks like chapter 5. You know, different places in Romans, it's very clear. He hardly gives a command in the first 11 chapters. There's a few, but it's largely indicative saying this is true about us in Christ. And then he transitions in chapter 12 and unloads a lot of imperatives, saying be this, do this in light of the mercies of God. And so this is how you live out the truth and how it is expressed in the church, and in the Christian life. And so, chapter 14, then, is the place where he actually hones in, and I'm going to read that as we begin tonight, then. Now, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats his vegetables, eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. For God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. And he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat, and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you... Why do you judge your brother, or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, all as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore let us not judge one another anymore. But rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, 
but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. Father in heaven, Lord, we are grateful for the time that we've had this weekend. And we recognize, Lord, that any good that we receive is from your hand. And we have been given multiple occasions of grace on various levels as we've discussed. And so as we consider your word uh, final time this weekend and consider it with regard to our own situation individually or here in this church or for me personally in the ministry I'm a part of, we pray, Lord, that you will drive home to us the points we need to consider, that we would bring an open heart, an open mind, and that you would speak to us. And so we, com- we commit this to you in the name of Jesus, your Son. Amen. Well, we've seen so far the wrath of God, the righteousness of God, the glory of God, the people of God, and tonight is the church of God. In each of these, we have considered how the truth of the gospel applies specifically to our identity. Largely, that's been based on, exegetically based on, the fact that those kind of issues show up. Calling, being named, the name of God, the name of Christ, boasting, ultimately even righteousness, the fact that we're trying to maybe establish our own righteousness or we're given a status. These kind of things speak of identity, being in Christ or in... And so using that kind of lens, we zero in tonight to answer the question that we've been exploring this weekend. What about this book makes the gospel intrinsically related to not just the unity of the church, but also the mission of the gospel. In other words, how do we treat the gospel as both noun, something to be believed, and verb, something to be to live? And we've suggested that if we do not live out the gospel and really live it, believe it as a verb, we need to question whether we actually own it as a noun. Because we saw at the very beginning that the gospel message is nested within the the shoot the beginning of the at the end of the book of mission, where it stepped down four 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 in chapter one, and now we're going to see as we lead into chapters fourteen and then into fifteen that it lands on Paul's desire to do mission in Spain in such a way that it is still part of his argument it appears, and not just part of the housekeeping, say hello to so-and-so kind of stuff. And so, consider again with me. The wrath of God says that my identity is a failure. It does me no good to say, I'm better than so-and-so. If I was born without the written word of God, or grew up with the written word of God, either way, All are under sin, and there is no distinction. Number two, we saw from the righteousness of God that in Christ, all who believe are justified, are given the status of righteousness before God. Doesn't matter if they're a Jew, doesn't matter if they're a Greek, and it doesn't matter any other earthly distinctions, for there is no distinction, Paul says. For all have sinned, lack the glory of God, and are justified as a gift by his grace. And then we saw that within the, you know, the glory of God, we said that is the right 
and the destiny of every believer. If we didn't catch it this morning, let Romans 8.30 say it. For as many as are called are justified, and as many as are justified are glorified. That there is an absolute link between everyone who has been justified in Christ and those who end up in heaven. Whatever conditions there are that are attached to going to heaven, conditions not in the sense of earning and meriting, but in a condition in the sense of predicating who goes to heaven, who, is, who actually ends up there. Chapter 8 says, those who suffer with Christ shall be glorified with Christ. Chapter 8 says, those who put to death the deeds of the body shall live. There is a connection between living ultimate eternal life and my earthly sanctified Christian life. But we see that within this book, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee that I will fulfill those conditions. They're not merited conditions. What they produce, it seems to be, is a fittingness that makes it fit that I and that this life and this end go together. What was merited and what earned it and bought it was done on the cross in Jesus Christ our Lord. That's where redemption happened, where the payment was made. That's where propitiation happened and the wrath was turned. That's where justification was given and the status was bestowed. And that's why the Holy Spirit has been given. Why heaven entered my heart and the spirit of adoption is now within me. And God and I are no longer enemies. We are friends and I can address him as father. That is the great blessing of the gospel. And so we praise God. That's every believer. No matter what background, no matter who they are. And so that's also an all. And now we saw this morning that even the ethnic distinctions between us, the differences that we have in Jew and Greek, and the differences, we can extend it by analogy to class differences or race differences, and ethnic differences of all sorts of kinds ultimately become also washed over with a great big all. That God has put all under disobedience that he might show mercy to all. And so here again we find a common identity in Christ where those distinctions fade away and the, the, the identity of being in Christ rises. If he didn't catch it this morning, I just want to add a word from 2 Corinthians on that. 2 Corinthians says, we now know Christ no longer according to the flesh. That is interesting. I don't think it would be right to say Jesus is a Jew today. The Messiah belongs to the Jews according to the flesh. That's chapter 9, verse 5. But he is no longer known according to the flesh. He is now the second Adam. He is now the new humanity, just as the church is the new Eve crafted out and fashioned out of his body. The great mystery of, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That great mystery speaks to a new, a new humanity that has come out of the new Adam. And so... What is Christ now? He's a transcendent human being. He's a glorified human being. Immutable. Incorruptible. I don't know, immutable. At least incorruptible. He's immutable because he's God. But incorruptible and immortal are the words that Paul uses of glorification. And so God be praised. We have, if I can use the language from this morning, we don't have a replacement theology where Israel blew it and then we, we like take out that SD card and we put in the Gentile SD card or something. You know, it's like what we have is we have Israel under the law is now brought into those who are in Christ and believing are brought into a heightened new relationship with God closer through adoption, closer through the gift of the Holy Spirit, closer through the access that we have in Christ brought into that new relationship because Christ is this humanity. And so it is fulfilled. 
theology. Not replacement theology, but fulfillment theology. Think of it like marriage. In an engagement, you all know what that would be like to say that this engagement got canceled. They called off their engagement. That would be like replacement theology. Oh, done with you. <laughs> you know, marriage, but marriage is not a continuation of engagement. It's something that transcends it and goes higher and fulfills it and brings it closer. We wouldn't say that marriage cancels the engagement. What we say is that marriage, like, fulfills and trumps it. And so all those promises in the Old Testament bring Israel into a new, greater relationship with God, and you as Gentile believers get grafted into this, though many of their branches are broken off, and someday will be grafted in. And we now walk in the Spirit, and as Galatians says, we are now in the maturity age. God is no longer treating us like minors that have to be told everything they need to do. Walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. I no longer need a very detailed, scripted law book that will keep me under control. At least it would appear. That's Galatians 3 into Galatians 4. And what a blessing. So, a new identity in Christ, a new status, a new relationship with God. All of these things Paul unpacks in these letters. And so tonight, we have the practicalness of like, what does it look like to live in the church with very different people on a week-to-week, day-to-day basis? Paul, would you please tell us what living out the gospel looks like? And then... How does that, living out the gospel in that kind of way, feed into the larger mission of the church? Which is chapter 15. So Paul, would you please tell us what this means now that we have this new identity in Christ? Well, Paul spends some time in chapter 12 on the church, just a few verses about various gifts, kind of like 1 Corinthians does. And then he deals with, in verse 9 and following, on love. Love is not to be hypocritical. Love is sincere. Love looks this way. I call this the other love chapter. If you ever want to, like, you know, have a, a neat little devotional, let's turn to the love chapter and then direct them to Romans 12. Because it's the other one. And you can see what love looks like based on Romans 12, 9 and following. Again, this echoes 1 Corinthians 13, which is kind of interesting to me that there's ties between the books. Chapter 13 deals with civic responsibilities as we have Paul addressing a Christian's relationship to government. A brother and I were talking about this the other day, or yesterday here about that. And so, obviously, this is the capital of the empire. It is certainly fitting that God would say something about Christians and government. Can you imagine writing a letter to Christians in Washington, D.C. and never talking about the Christians in government? That would seem a little odd. And so this is very fitting that in this book, he would spend the most time he does in any book talking about Christians and the government. But then he ends with the basic, how the second table of the law is fulfilled in loving your neighbor and love does no harm to a neighbor. Now just pause with me. Note, whatever he's going to say in chapter 14 is not going to contradict chapters 1 through 13. In chapter 14, he's going to say, The faith that you have, have as your own before God. Let every man be fully convinced in his own mind. And you might think, oh, I get to select the menu of faith. (laughs) And then just be fully convinced that my little selections is the best or something. You know, it's like... It's, there's a lot. No, there are some things you don't get to choose on. The gospel, chapters 1 to 11, is not up for grabs, okay? We must be united on the gospel. No option. And we must be united on the moral law. It's not like getting to commit adultery and not getting to commit adultery is up for, you know, the adia for the things of indifference. Chapter 13 says, no, that would not be 
loving. Love fulfills the law. Whatever the law says, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal. Love fulfills those things. You will not do those things if you love your brother. And so even though my ethic in Christ is faith and love, faith and love, faith is not so squishy and willy-washy that it includes anything you want to believe, and love is not so undefined that you can just not do what, like, say, Ten Commandments stuff would be. The moral law is in place because it truly is loving to your neighbor, and the gospel is in place. So whatever I'm going to say from Paul in chapter 14 do not treat this as like pure relativism. It's up for grabs. You can kind of do what you want. With that in mind, when we move into chapter 14, though, there are some really interesting things that are up for grabs. When you move into chapter 14, here are some of the, you might call them the, the theses or the statements we could make. Number one, Christianity is pluralistic without being relativistic. It's pluralistic in that all people are invited in. All, all people. You know, that's a holy echo. Thank you, brother. <laughs> Christianity is pluralistic without being relativistic. Because it is a religion that invites all the nations of the earth in without requiring them to lay down their cultural distinctiveness. Certain things, yes, that break the moral law need to be washed away by the blood of Christ and the Holy Spirit. Certain beliefs, myths need to be washed away by the gospel of Jesus. But so much of cultural distinctiveness is going to be in place. To me, that's just like our God. Whenever you walk out into the woods, what a variety of trees. That strange looking sassafras with those three pointed, you know, those three kind of like rounded leaves on it. And some of them stick together. And they have that interesting root that can make tea. What an interesting thing. All the varieties of maples, and then the oaks, and then those black walnuts that's been tripping my ankles up lately, you know, as they've kind of become these little billiard balls in the, in the, in the lawn, you know. It's like, God loves varieties. All these interesting vegetables. And there's different ones, it appears like, in the south than there are in the north. I never heard of okra until I kind of dropped below the, the southern border of Minnesota, you know. It's like, you know, it's like variety of, of vegetables. And look at us as people. God loves diversity. I mean, it's on the surface of his nature. And so to think that God would try to make everything uniform would be so contrary to what we see God as creator. Why would he make that in, in redemption? And so God is not. It's not that way. Christianity is pluralistic without being relativistic, because of the gospel and the moral law, they're in place. Number two, Christianity is both inclusive and exclusive. It's inclusive, well, let me start, it's exclusive because there's only one way to God. Jesus says, I am the way. No one comes to the Father but through me. There's only one way to God. There's only one mediator between God and man. Right? Man. The man Christ Jesus. There's only one way. And yet that one way is open to all people. No one has to become a Jew first. No one has to be circumcised before they can get Christ. A Gentile can remain a Gentile. A Jew can remain a Jew. Ethnicities and cultures can remain in place. Open to all, and yet only one door. So, what an interesting thing to be inclusive, open to all, and exclusive. Only one door. Pluralistic, embracing all cultures, yet not relativistic. Because there is something firmly to believe and something firmly to be done. And so, it's this kind of a vision that Paul presents as a background leading up to this chapter. Where he discusses now the unity within the church... And say, what does this look like lived out?
we basically have two kinds of people introduced to us in chapter 14. Right off the bat, we have somebody who is weak in faith, and then we have somebody who is strong in faith. The strong are mentioned in chapter 15. We who are strong are to, ought to bear with the weaknesses of those without strength. There are those who are weak in faith and those who are strong in faith. What characterizes those weak in faith is they have scruples pertaining to things like what they eat or days that they hold a certain day more holy than another day. Those are the things he brings up. When I taught on this at the church back home, one of our older brothers came to me and said, you know, it's like, I thought I was one of the strong brothers because I had all this great list of issues. <laughs> you know, it's tempting to think I'm a really rigorous, vigorous Christian. I've thought through all these issues and I show up with my big list of things that this shouldn't be so, this isn't so, and, and this 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 and this. The person with the long list of issues that's come up with all these things that wants to kind of bring them into the church and make the church conform to this list, Paul would say, you're a weak brother. You haven't been liberated by a strong faith from a bunch of different scruples, where the strong in faith are those who can regard any day as, as another day. Maybe they'll regard this day, this day as holy and whatnot, but they can be flexible. They can eat this or not eat this. They can be this for all men or not be this for all men. You know, it's like, I can be like a Jew when I'm around a Jew. I can be like a Gentile when I'm around a Gentile. It's the way Paul lived. A flexible, you might say, a flexible lifestyle based on a strong, firm faith in Christ, galvanized conscience, is actually the strong believer. That's remarkable, because it appears like it would be the opposite person with high scruples and very picky conscience, a very sensitized individual. What a strong Christian. And Paul would say, what a weak faith. So it's interesting to me. I say this just candidly and, and you know, keep an advertising. I happen to be, I happen to do well on the weak side of things. When I came out of seminary in my mid-30s, I felt homeless and, and uh, helpless. I was like, nobody's going to accept me. That's like, I had issues and issues. I had figured out this. It felt like to be a good Christian, yes, you get the gospel, and then you go chasing down all these issues. And they kind of feel like they chase away from you, and they pull you away from the center. And all of a sudden, I got a position on this, and I got a position on this, and I got a position on this, and I got a position on this. And when you think about all the positions, you know, do you home birth? Or do you go to a hospital? That one came up in our church recently, a couple years back. You know, it's like ladies who kept asking this of other ladies. And like pretty soon us as elders were going, I don't know that we need to ask our new coming ladies this question of which preference they have. You know, or like one more familiar to you might be homeschooling or, you know, private schooling or public schooling. You know, and, and when we might say, well, okay, if you're going to public school, you need to home educate and make sure you disciple well, but could we absolutely say, you know, is it, is it that, is it part of the moral law that you must do this? You know, well, I don't want to support this, you know, political stance, so I'm going to boycott this store. I'm going to not buy that, you know, product. And then all of a sudden we go to a brother's house and we see, they got that product on their cupboard. I'm like, what is going on? I thought, do you know what they're supporting? And do you know where your money's going? If we trace that logic out, it'd be hard to give a dime to the federal government. <laughs> it might have been hard to give your taxes to Rome, too. But Paul thought it was okay to pay your taxes to Rome, according to chapter 13. So apparently I must not be held in tight on that kind of a thing, but... You know, maybe so, maybe yes. If I have a choice, though, you don't have a choice with taxes, brother. You know, you got a choice what granola you buy. You know, it's like, okay, you know, we got that issues. Of course, entertainment issues. You know, on, on what things people get entertained with. And, of course, the, tr the perennial ones of food and drink. You know, but wow, 
I used to think that alcohol one was the go-to. I mean, if you want to talk about Romans 14, like, let's bring up alcohol. You know, some say no alcohol at all. Some say alcohol. And, you know, at least in moderation, drunkenness is out. You know, all that. And, and it was interesting to do my studies, PhD studies in American history, and to realize that it was the 1820s that brought teetotalism really hard into American culture. And, and before that, even Baptist ministers getting excommunicated for drunkenness. Which seems to say that, I don't know that was so wise. Because <laughs> you know, anyways, you know, and so I'm not, personally, I don't drink, you know, but I've, I've not been able to like, you know, cast that conscience on another. And, but I used to think that was like the go-to one. But after, two, you know, 2020, and the whole mask issue, and the whole vaccination issue, it became real. How in the world are we going to maintain unity with such vastly different opinions? And it was challenging as elders in those years to go through. You know, you got some people that, I mean, just are taking their children almost by the collar and say, if you're not vaccinated and you're not, you know, wearing a mask, I don't know that we can, you know, like be around you or vice versa children to parents and you can't see our our grand your grandchildren until this you know it's like you know and people are staying away from church and other people are saying that's all a hoax there's nothing to this and and just kind of parading around like nothing's going on you know and like mask no mask and what do you do how do you end up respecting everybody's conscience i hope you understand it made romans 14 come alive to me it's like we've got to follow this we could go on and on. I mean, the human mind is so creative with issues, it'll come up with issues regarding issues. I mean, we haven't even talked about church music, you know, <laughs> instruments and all sorts of things. So, you know, we got issues, right? And so how are you going to get along? How are you going to be unified when you've got a weak brother that comes in with a pretty good list and a strong brother that comes in and goes, you know, just love the Lord, just believe his gospel, Come on, can we all just unite for the gospel's sake? And the weak brother's going, I don't know. What are we going to have for lunch? You know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so, so what are we going to do? Well, Paul warns us, now that we get these two firmly in our mind, the strong brother has a sinful tendency. And the weak brother has a ten sinful tendency. The weak brother, it says, the opening of chapter 14, is tempted to judge his strong brother. To judge him. I can't see how a Christian could do that, support that, be that. I don't, I can't see it. You must not be a Christian and just judge and end up condemning. That can be a tendency. In fact, I have felt it in my soul and had to and have had to fight it with examples from scripture, even. If I can't argue with myself, at least I can find a counterexample and say, well, he was a Christian and did this. So, Bob, somewhere in your conscience, you're not seeing something you should be seeing. Just stop. <laughs> you know, hold back. I mean, my conscience was so sensitive at one point, I felt like I couldn't rent from a non-Christian. It was the end of Acts that enabled me to rent because Paul was in rented quarters and I doubt it was from a Christian. It was like, well, if Paul could do it, I guess I could do it. I mean, it's like sometimes a weak brother can get to be so frail, it's like he can almost timidly not do anything and feel like he's kind of painted himself into a corner with all his scruples. You know, and so thankfully I don't live there anymore. But that was, it's been 20 years of recovery. <laughs> I think I'm still in recovery. You know, so it's like... I, a weak brother tends to judge a strong brother. I saw this in my studies in America. Did you realize the abolitionist Baptists in the North basically condemned the Southern brothers who were slaveholders. Christian couldn't do that. How could a Christian do that? And so that's part of why the Southern Baptists separated from the Northern Baptists. Of course, the Southern Baptists, I think, aired some of them at the time period by they could point to Philemon and say, well, what about Philemon? <laughs> you know, well, then you got the counter argument. Paul said, you know, encouraged him to set free voluntarily his slave who is now believing. 
And the South, I think, erred by trying to argue at times to make slavery a positive good. And so, you know, either side seems to have errors on it. As I look back at that very difficult time for the church to get along, that, make, that makes mass look puny. That, that split the two largest denominations in America, the Methodists in 1844 and the Baptists in 1845. And if the Christians in America couldn't get along over that issue, there was no way the political state was going to continue to get along. On the, on the other side, strong brothers, their tendency is to despise or look down at the weak brother. What? You can't watch this? I mean, come on. I mean, lighten up. Hey, here, let me show you something. Serve them this. You know, basically say, get over it. You know, I can't believe you're so hung up on this. We got freedom in Christ. And kind of despise them and look down instead of tenderly or, you know, treating them with care. And Paul describes that here in 1 Corinthians as destroying a brother. That's bold language. And he says here, you are not walking in love for the sake of food. Do not destroy him for whom Christ died. It is a dangerous thing to mess with somebody's conscience when they truly feel revulsed on the inside. Like, no, no, no. To touch that is sin. I can't touch it. And then to encourage them to do it. And with your force of persuasion or example, and they will turn around after they have committed that act and will thrash themselves. And if it gets repeated, it will continue to erode their insides. It is a dangerous thing to mess with people's faith. I think parents in particular need to take this into account. Your job as a parent is not to be the conscience of your children. It's to tie their conscience to the authority of God because the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Your job is to lead them by the hand to the authority of God and not to continue to be the authority, do this because I say so. It can work in a pinch, but it shouldn't be our go-to. Similarly as churches, we should not be the conscience of God be God prohibit it. We should be encouraging them to develop their own faith in the Lord beyond the gospel, beyond the moral law, to be mature Christians who in the Holy Spirit can think through these issues and come to their own conclusion. Even when as a pastor I am so tempted to want to tell them, don't do that. Recently a young college student said my sister is lesbian I've been thinking through what do I do if she says I'm going to get married to this woman I'm glad he's thinking about it ahead of time I was so tempted to tell him what to do I encouraged him and said you need to bring this to somebody to a pastor in counsel and before the Lord in prayer think this through ahead of time so when that moment comes you know what you're going to do that's the kind of thing that we need to, you know, be aware of each other's conscience. And it is so tempting to want to just say, well, let me give you the answer. Whatever that issue may be. And the expression, even of the moral law, and how it looks in day-to-day -day life, or looks in decision-making. Please note, and I pray, take this to heart. Jesus said, if somebody inserts themselves between this soul and God... They are a stumbling block. When Peter forbid Jesus from going to the cross, Jesus rebuked him saying, get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block to me. He knew the will of God and that was to go to the cross and Peter said, no. At that moment, a person inserts their authority and pits it against God's authority and the conscience is left. Which authority do I get tied to? for right and for wrong decision-making. And two chapters later, Jesus says, it is better for a millstone to be tied around my neck and thrown into the sea 
than to cause one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. And how many ministries or how many homes have caused little ones to stumble because they insert, you shall not do this because I say so. Maybe go to the mission field. Maybe marry this individual. I forbid it. And you're like, who are you to forbid this? You're not God. You didn't die for me. What do you mean forbid? I just, I'm pleading with you. Please don't be that person. Don't, don't be that. Because it's a frightful ending. And so we're not to cause, we're not to despise weak ones. We're not to put stumbling blocks, as it says, before them. We are not to destroy them. Because if they do, then do it because we say so. Their soul is now falling away from Christ and being separated from him. So don't do that. Are you understanding then the two kinds of people, the two sides, the two kinds of issues? The chapter is so beautiful in how it lays out these tendencies in us. So what do we do? How do we find unity? Well, it's certainly not uniformity. Everybody do the same thing. Because Paul is actually pretty comfortable by saying, let him who eats do so to the glory of God, giving thanks, and let him who does not eat, for the Lord not eat, and give thanks to God. I think that's pretty remarkable. Because later in verse, that was verse 6 I was quoting, later he says in verse 14, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing in itself is unclean. Like, he knows the answer. Mark 7, Jesus declared all foods clean. Like, all foods. Have a pork sandwich. It's all clean. You know, it's like, and so, Paul knows the answer. As even a Jew who would have held the kosher rules. He would have followed those rules. He knew all foods are clean. And yet, he didn't feel, even as the apostle of Jesus Christ... He did not feel the compulsion to walk into a church setting like Rome and demand that they all conform to what he knows even to be the right answer. On the gospel, yes. On the moral law, yes. Keep that in mind. But when it comes to what's on the menu, he's going to let people do according to their conscience as long as there's worship as long as they can give thanks to God. If they can give thanks to God, therefore, eat away or don't eat. But I'm not going to force you to be one or the other. Do you know how freeing this is for Christian ministry? Woo! I am so glad as a pastor I don't have to, like, you know, take a group of, a, you know, 100 people and gather them together and say, okay, guys, we got to figure this out. Can we all get to the bottom of this? And then walk through every issue. There's no way we're all going to get to the same point on a variety of these things. Some of these we're going to have to compromise on because we all are in this together. You know, there's going to be some kind of place we'll settle on in love for things that we do corporately. But things that we do individually, we have to allow for some differences. And so, in your decision making, please know you don't always have to find the right answer. Even if there is one, sometimes there's not. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says, with regard to marrying or not marrying, it's better to stay single, but you don't sin if you marry. It's still good. That can stump a perfectionistic person. It's like, I want to do the will of God, and I want to do what's right. Okay, what's the right decision here? And God says, well, this is good, and this is better. Oh, I'll be sinning if I don't pick the optimal one. Nope. If you choose the lesser of the two goods, you haven't sinned. That doesn't hold in some minds. You're like, what? It's like, nope, you can go to the restaurant and this is the best food you could eat for your body. But this is also good food and you can buy the, you can choose this one too. And you don't have to walk out of the restaurant going, you fool, why didn't you choose the best optimal, you know, least calorie, highest fiber, best food ever? You ended up choosing that. But it wasn't bad. And it wasn't sinful. 
Okay. Now there may be other reasons, external, you know, have all that, but you get my point. You don't have to decide on the basis of this and that. And mark this. You don't have to fret and wonder, oh, I gotta figure all this life out. Every single decision. What if I can't get it right? Paul says, no what? Just settle and have a conviction and then live it out. Maybe you end up getting it wrong. <laughs> Maybe you end up getting into heaven going, I could have had bacon. Yeah, I mean, all those breakfasts that I passed it by, you know? Hey, did you, did you forego bacon to the glory of God? Did you thank him? You know, if you did, you did what was ultimately right. You lived for his glory. It's okay. We can, we can agree on that. Okay, so Paul, and I'd say parents, I'd say pastors, I'd say ministries, you don't have to make it your job to make everybody do the same thing or even figure it out and get the right answer, even if there is a right answer. As long as worship happens, as long as the weak don't judge the strong and the strong don't despise the weak. If there's faith, they have their own conviction, they live before God and are able to give a firm thank you, God, for what they do or don't do, and then they handle it in love, with regard to other brothers, God be praised. This is the basis of evangelical unity in the church of Jesus. Unity based on the gospel. Think about this with regard to identity. How many of us make an identity of our distinctiveness and our differences? We even have names in our culture for this. You know, vegan or vegetarian or, or you know, I mean... Bumper stickers up in my county, you know, are like, you know, so many cats, two recipes, you know, or, I mean, just, they make jokes about eating all sorts of things, okay, and, and not liking this animal. I mean, it's like, you got the camel wearing, shoot everything, put it on a skillet or put it over a spigot and different, and then other people, don't eat the animals, you know, it's like, right? And so, what do you do if you bring them all into the church together? Can you be in church together? One church in Fremont, California, I had two sets of dishes in their homes because half their congregation was from India. They would never eat from utensil meat. And so the church people, out of deference and love for these Indians from India, would bring a special set of dishes and bring their food prepared in those dishes to bring to a church meal. Isn't that beautiful? They don't have to try to convince the other brothers, oh please, it doesn't, God says all foods are clean. If culturally that's where they're at and that's where they've lived, love them as they are. Maybe their conscience will get strong enough someday to move beyond if that's the right position. But it's not my job to force it. Okay, do you see that? I think it's beautiful. That kind of a church is attractive and beautiful. And that leads to then our questions about how does this then pertain to Christian missions? With regard to local missions and evangelism, I think genuine church unity, like I just described, is compellingly beautiful. Because our, our culture, for whatever reason, wants to affirm diversity. Now, they want to affirm it in ways that break the moral law. But there are ways that affirm cultural differences that they strive to celebrate or to affirm, which we actually, in Christ, have every reason for allowing for and even affirming a brother or a sister differences. We can actually live the pluralistic way. We're called to be for all people. Men from every tribe, kindred, nation, tongue shall be before the throne someday. What an interesting thing. We don't have to be like Islam that always has its holy book in the holy writings and everybody's, you know, either memorizing or learning it in this way and everybody's uniform when they show up and bow down the same way and bow in the same direction. It's like, no. We're diverse people, but we're not relativistic. We're not just like any way gets you to heaven. 
No, it's only Jesus and only the blood that gives you the righteousness. It's not just live any way you please. No, love. And love is defined and looks a certain way. Faith and love are not open for grabs. But within that, oh, the realm of cultural differences and the beauty that will appear. And if you and I can live that way, as Titus chapter 2 says, we want to show all faith is good. It adorns the gospel. It attracts. And so in a culture that values this, how interesting if we're able to do that and be that. I also think it's necessary even for evangelism in Paul saying, I became all things for all men. And if you are familiar with the interesting story of Rosaria Butterfield being that feminist, lesbian professor of the women's studies department at the University of Syracuse and the pastor that then invited her to a conversation and discussion over things she was publishing and he responded. And when she came to their house for dinner, I think they shut the air conditioner off and they served her only vegetables because they took into account how her sensibilities were with regard to the environment and with regard to animal life. And some of us in this room right now are thinking they didn't take a stand. They didn't, you know, stand for what is right. It may be right, again, but if Paul's not bent out of shape for always getting what is right pushed in the church, it is okay, it's not sinning, to do something that is actually still loving, offering somebody food. Right? And if it perhaps does damage, I'll forego. Whatever that may be, it led to then no distraction in their relationship and eventually conversations continued to pursue, and she became a Christian. Now, she is a remarkable example because there's not many like that. That is a bull that is hard to break. God brought her out of that. She wrote a story down after being converted because she didn't want to think. It became so radical, she knew if she kept going on, eventually that way of thinking would fade from her mind. And so she wrote her story down mainly for herself. But you can read it, it's been published so I think it's helpful for evangelism. Paul definitely practiced that. I became all things in order to all men in order to win the more. But let's go farther than just evangelism or cultural, you know, celebration or expression of the, the greatness of God and bringing all peoples in. Let's go to missions. How do we then focus this on missions? And how does this chapter slide into chapter 15? My eyes were opened when I read a book by J.D. Crowley and Andrew Nacelli called Conscience. I would recommend that book. It is very well done and is not very long. It starts out with just a chapter going through every use of the word conscience in the New Testament. It almost starts slow and you, you go like, well, is, this, is there much to this book? But by the end of it, it just ramps up into this marvelous vision. And he walks through this passage. He walks through 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10 and talks about a variety of issues and is so enlightening. But when they get to the end of the book, he then goes to this section of scripture. So let me just give you his claim is that the church of Jesus Christ, let's say the local church, is the laboratory for cult cross-cultural missions. That's their claim. That this church, for example, is the laboratory for cross-cultural missions. Think of it this way. If you and I are not able to be aware of our own conscience and how it's different than the word of God and how our own conscience defines what is right and wrong for us and sometimes it's basically our own opinions, not the word of God. If we can't tell the difference, we will easily impose it upon somebody else, create issues that are irrelevant to the gospel. If they believe us, we'll end up damaging their conscience by tying it to something that's not scriptural. And we will lack the ability to imagine what somebody else's conscience is thinking about a situation. And we will lack the ability to empathize and value 
the differences and their conscience as something valuable and to be protected. If the differences in America make it difficult for us to be in the same church together, can you imagine what it's like to go across cultures and try to minister and live there? If you can't imagine, there's a funny story. Because J.D. Crowley was in Cambodia and had planted a mango tree. It takes four years to produce fruit. And the fourth year finally came. If you've ever done orchards, you know what this is like. You know, it's like, there's fruit on the tree. You know, it's like, I think there were three precious mangoes. You know how that goes, right? That first year is like, three precious mangoes. And one person walked by, picked all three, and walked off. He was so ticked off. It's like, that is so wrong. That was my mango tree. <laughs> well, it was hard for his conscience to realize that in Cambodia, as in much of the world, food is something to be shared. And that not to share your food is to communicate you are stingy and don't care about your neighbors. So it's not, it's not a crime to walk by somebody's neighbor, you know, somebody's yard, and pick their mangoes. As long as you're not, like, harvesting a crop or something. Okay? <laughs> it's within reason. But didn't Jesus' disciples walk along and pick heads of grain, you know? It's okay. But we as America, with property rights, that would be trespassing, and a sense of, that's my mango tree. <laughs> Unless I give it to you, don't eat it. We in America find that was a violation, that was a wrong. And yet, on the other side, if he had made a stink about that, the Cambodian people said, what a stingy American who doesn't care about his neighbors. Imagine fighting over food that you could bless others with, you know? That's quite a difference in cultural perspectives. And if I can't appreciate that both have an aspect of love your neighbor to it. If I can't appreciate that there's something to this, then I'm going to have difficulty relating to others in, in other cultures. Hence, that conference was on cultural quotient. How good, is your, how good is your conscience in handling different cultural issues? When I took their test, I got a 25% on my CQ. I was like, it was like your IQ. It's really low. Okay, I think since then my conscience has gotten better. I think I might, I might have upped my score a little bit, hopefully. But it's a challenge, you know, to think of these differences. And so what do you do then when you go across seas if you've never learned to actually relate to your brother across the pew on differences? And not get bent out of shape over their differences with your differences over things in the adiaphora, meaning things of indifference then there are many things of indifference. If I can't love my brother in things of indifference, then how in the world am I going to love my neighbor across the world? Which is going to be so hard to even figure out what they value or don't value. It's a continual surprise in a cross-cultural experience. And so I think that is correct. But that wasn't even the Trump. They said, they said that and they made those claims and then they went one step further... In chapter 15, they say, and the greatest cross-cultural missionary ever is Jesus Christ, who accepted us. The same word as starts out, or the same kind of word that starts out chapter 14, accept him who is weak. Because chapter 15, verse 7 says, therefore accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Can you imagine Jesus, perfect Lord, creator of heaven and earth, who made all these people, who even wrote the law, then becoming born of a woman and born under the law and being, as Crowley and Nassali say, a good Jewish boy. 
You know how there's a bristle in my American spine over like having to follow rules that are not necessary? There's something in me that goes, do I really have to live this way? But I, how could I even imagine what Jesus did? And he lived that way as an unknown, indescript carpenter, builder, until age 30. He didn't assert his rights. He didn't say anything. It wasn't until, you know, he assumed the mantle of the, you know, visible Messiah, anointed. Then he becomes Lord of the Sabbath. Then he starts declaring things food. But how did he grow up? He was born under the law. What did he live like probably growing up? And of course, he encouraged his disciples, you know, like, do this so they're not offended. You know, the leper, when they're clean, go show yourself even to the priest, even as the law of Moses says. But Jesus, can you imagine laying aside his rights to walk among people like us? No wonder Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, after he got done talking about these things in 1 Corinthians. He was imitating Jesus by being all things for all men. Jesus became servant, verse 8 says, servant to the circumcision, the Jews, to confirm the promises given to the fathers, and he became servants to the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. Jesus became a voluntary slave. As Luther's book, Freedom of the Christian, says, a Christian is a perfect slave, right? Dutiful slave, slave of all, voluntarily giving himself in love to his brother. If you're weak, I'll forego and I'm not going to press it. We don't, have to, we don't have to do that. We don't have to see that. We don't have to touch that. We don't have to taste that. I respect your conscience. I'm just happy we're brother and sister in Christ. Let's enjoy Jesus together. Let's focus on the gospel. Let's love our neighbor. Let's pursue an evangelism and let's pursue the nations and missions rather than get distracted and bent out of shape about these differences, even if I am right. Can we hold that kind of conscience with each other? Because Jesus certainly set aside a lot of rights to take the form of a servant, a slave, and walk among us for our sake and then bearing our guilt and all sorts of humiliation, Paul says. So if that's true, can we do this and follow in his steps? Now let's add identity. Because for some of us, if we broke out of that and became all things for all men, we might wonder what so-and-so will think. Oh, I'll get marked as a liberal. Oh, they'll think I went woke. Right? They'll think I went, whatever they might think. It's like, my heart is definitely not woke or liberal. I believe firmly in the gospel of Jesus Christ and believe firmly in the inerrant literal word of God. I believe firmly in the moral law. I do not believe that homosexuality is a lifestyle. I don't believe it's a mere choice. I think the temptations go deeper as I described earlier. And so a law of sin is in the member of every one of us and every one of our bodies. But I don't believe that's just an alternative lifestyle. It's a sin. People need to be liberated and praise God according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Such were some of you. Were some of you. But if it takes risking being identified as a liberal in order to love my brother rightly, in order to associate with a Christian from another culture, in order to try to reach a neighbor or cross cultural lines overseas or here to reach someone for Christ, I guess that's the risk I need to take. That's called meekness, to do what's right and not live for self-defense. If I have to wear that mis-slanderous label and mislabel, well, okay, I hope in time they see that they're in error because that's not me. But I live before God. What's my identity? My identity is not tied to an issue. Please don't make your identity an issue. I'm a teetotaler. Or and vice versa, I'm a liberated alcohol drinker. I've seen that up in the college I have served in the past. You know, I saw one guy wanting to promote Christianity to Hillsdale College students, 
and he was saying he was an evangelical, and he talked about drinking my scotch, and he went like this. I'm like, I don't know that that was necessary to do that. You know, it's like, I can boast in that and make my identity that. I have liberty, and I want you to know it. That's my label. Or I would never touch that. I want you to know it. That's my label. Let's ditch the labels. Because ditching the labels will enable us then to reach out to anybody with the gospel of Jesus and to embrace any believer who comes in. To embrace an MPB, a Muslim background believer. Well, label to. For those who have the card that says Christians, to embrace a Christian who comes out of Islam. May the Lord grant them to be able to do it someday. Because the label means nothing. They're in Christ and I'm in Christ. But it's a lot harder for them. And it's a lot easier for me to say it on this side of the ocean. But may the Lord grant them to do it. Do you see how identifying ourselves correctly as a failure, now justified in Christ, who has the glory of heaven coming, I can give my life away, and ethnicities and all other distinctions are washed out under the great alls of the gospel. What is my identity? It's Jesus. It's his jersey I wear. I'm glad to be a part of his team. I'm glad to be a part of his play, even if I have a cameo appearance. It is a great honor just to be in the cast. Whatever it may be, may that be my identity. And I think Crowley and Nacelli are right. If that's so, it will propel us into missions. We will be much more free to reach out to those who are different than us. So may in our individual churches we learn to embrace each other in our differences here respecting each other in that way of faith and love, having our own convictions, but then not despising, not judging, but loving each other rightly. And if you want to do that, please join me in prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, I am so thankful. We are so thankful for this book and this vision. It is challenging, especially to those of us who have created issues and then attached our identity to the issues. Lord, grant us to be separated, if even slowly, from those things. And they become weaker and weaker. And Christ becomes more strong. And this vision of faith and love grows. May that happen for us. So that we would be more useful for you. In your kingdom, in your local church. And if you should choose in cross-cultural in missions. And so, Lord, I commit this church to you. May they as a body not own any other label but Jesus Christ. Be known under him. They can have their convictions just like our church back home can have its convictions. We should. But our label and identity is something different. So bless them in that. Bless us individually Christians in that. And in all these things, may Jesus Christ be honored. May his name be lifted above every name so that when it happens at the end of history, we'll already have a long track of practicing it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, thank you all for letting me come. God bless you.